titled our message this morning, Satisfied in Christ. Satisfied in Christ. That brings us to the age-old question, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? You know, for years, philosophers or philosophy professors have proposed this question as a test to supposedly teach his students something about themselves, right? It's not really if the glass is half full or empty. We know it's the same for each of those questions. But what they're trying to teach through this question is, if you would answer that question, well, the glass is half full, well, you supposedly are someone who can focus on the good in life, even if the bad is present. You can focus on that good. But if you answer the question, well, the glass is half empty, well, that means that you're supposedly someone who will only focus on the negative and fails to see the good in the midst of it. Where do we fall as Christians in a conversation like this? How do we look at life? How do we look at a glass? And I don't think we would ask the same question that a professor like this would ask. But the question that I think we would ask is, how much does God, through Jesus Christ, actually fill you? You know, if we're thinking about that as a Christian, it shouldn't be answering these either one. Of course, there are going to be ups and downs in our life, difficulties at times. But how much does God through Jesus Christ, satisfy you, fill you? Can you find joy even in the midst of those up and downs? What I think we're going to find in our text today is that Paul challenges the church at Ephesus there to be satisfied fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we are that type of Christian that sees Christ for who he is, the glass for us is not going to be half of either full or empty. It's going to be completely full even in the midst of things we think are, should be different or we want different, we can say, I'm satisfied in Christ. I'm satisfied in Christ. He fills my cup completely. He's the one that I'm living for. How about you today? Is your cup half full, half empty? Or do you see past that discussion and say, Christ is everything. He is filling me up completely. Let's look at our passage today, 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to start by reading three 10, the last time we met, two weeks ago, we really focused in on verses 3 through 5, um, but it's kind of part of the same context. So I want you to see the full uh, context as we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. So follow along as I read. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that, that accords with godliness, he is puffed puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothes, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Dear God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for... Uh, the worship we have already had, and it's singing of your holiness and your grace to us. God, we ask that you help us as we look at your word today. 
Um, help us to understand it and put it into practice in our life. Be with us as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In our context, last week, we ended with verse 5. It's important to see what we end with. Verse 5 says, "...in constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth." And then he has one small phrase that he puts at the end. He says, "...imagining that godliness is a means of gain." These people that are constantly in conflict with one another, this is in the church setting. Christians, what's one thing that they have in common is that they imagine godliness is a means for their personal gain. And in a sense, it's their possessions and what they can get from being part of the community, whatever that looks like. Now, he takes that little phrase, and then that almost flips a switch in his mind to say, I'm going to talk about what, what contentment really looks like. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Then look at verse 6. He goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And he's not talking about any personal possessions here. He's not talking about we live for God because he's going to give us the possessions of the world that we think are going to make us happy. He's talking about the possession of Jesus Christ and a life for him. That's what's the great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He combines those two together and we cannot say separate them. If we say that we're growing in godliness, but we see constantly ourselves failing to be content in the situation that we're in, where are we? Maybe we're struggling with godliness. We're not saying you're not a Christian. We're saying that we need to be thankful and satisfied in Christ. Be thankful and satisfied in Christ. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the question we ask today. Are you fully content with God's plan for your life? Are you fully content with God's plan for your life? Godliness with contentment. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a difficult thing to do. It's difficult when things aren't going the way you want, when you think you should be getting what you want out of life. You consider, I've been a good person. I've tried to do what I can. How come I can't get what I want? Well, really, that whole question is built around me, my, what I want, my wants, my selfishness. Is that how we look at life? What, what can I get out of it? Or is it, what is Christ given to me that I can be satisfied in? What can I show to the people around me that I don't live for this world, but I live for something greater than myself? It's for the Savior, Jesus Christ, that's already been given to me. When we focus on those concepts, it really builds inside of us a contentment, a heart of contentment that the world looks at and will see something is different. Something's different that they're living for. And if I was in their shoes, I could not be happy if my family was unhealthy, if I had job problems. I mean, all these things that happen in life, we can find contentment even in the midst of it if our focus is on Christ. Godliness with contentment. How about you? Are you fully content with God's plan for your life? As we look at our text today, we're going to be given some opportunities to evaluate. Evaluate yourself as we go through it. Now, Paul starts, and the first thing he uses to help us evaluate ourselves is the idea that, number one, content people meditate on and embrace God's realities for life. Content people meditate on and embrace God's realities for life. You know what that says? It doesn't say that they meditate on what they want out of life, what they hope they can get out of life. 
And even as they become a Christian, what God can give them in this life, no, he focuses, a content person, he meditates on and he embraces God's realities for life. Look at verse 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, for, and then verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothes with these, we will be content. These couple short verses are giving us some very important truths for us to remember. First of all, everyone is born a sinner into a sin-cursed world without anything of sustainable value. All of us are born a sinner, and the only thing that you bring into this world is your sinfulness. Your sinful life. From the point of Adam and Eve falling in the Garden of Eden, the sin has been passed from them onto each and every one of us. It doesn't take us uh, different times to teach our kids how to fight with each other, how to be selfish with their toys. We are sinners from childhood, right? We've brought nothing into this world. And it says, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Well, we're not just, we bring sinfulness into the world. We don't bring one ounce of physical possessions into this world. We've had people that have had a baby, another one that had a baby on the way just a week. As those babies are delivered, what do they have? They have nothing. You know, as soon as they come out, you want to wipe them off, wrap them up, because they are, they have no possessions. They don't even have a blanket that can keep them warm. And it goes the same at the end of our life. We bring nothing into the world. And at the end, no matter how much we have gathered for ourselves in retirement, for whatever else, we can take nothing of that with us. That's one of God's realities. This world stays where it is. Our physical world that we live for is, as the Bible tells us, 70 to 80 to 90 years, and then we're gone. And all of the physical stuff of this world has no bearing on our eternity. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. What else from, do we learn from this text is that God has provided valuable eternal salvation for those who repent and believe in Jesus. We are reminded this world and living for Christ is not about possessions, but that it's about something greater than the physical here. And where do we find something greater than the physical that will last past this life and for all of eternity? We only find it in the person of Jesus Christ. God has provided valuable, eternal salvation for those who repent and believe in Jesus. That's what we're challenged with today. Don't let the physical of this world tempt you into thinking that that's what, that's what life's about. We also are find from the text here, that those fully satisfied, excuse me one second, <clears throat> excuse me, we also find that those fully satisfied in Jesus will be content with God's provisions for their life. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content. It doesn't say if we have food and clothing and the big house that we want and that nice car that we want and some sort of any new technology thing that you think is going to satisfy you. Okay? None of that stuff is going to bring you satisfaction. If we have food and clothes, with these we will be content because we have the person that gives us complete contentment. The person, Jesus Christ, and salvation in his name. Do you have that contentment? Can you see past your physical life to say, I, I, that's not what I live for. You know, I need to work so that I don't 
and ask God to help me see past those things and realize I don't want to live for that. I want to live for him and give him glory with my life. One of the people that could see that was Corey Tenboom. And Corey Tenboom, she lived uh, during Jewish Nazi camps, and she was one of the people who helped many Jewish people escape the Nazi camps. She says this, she said, When we are on the beach, uh, we can only see a small part of the ocean. However, we know that there is much more beyond the horizon. We only see a small part of God's great love, a few jewels of his great riches, but we know that there is much more beyond the horizon. The best is yet to come when we see Jesus face to face. She saw the worst atrocities that this world has to offer. And she was herself caught, placed into prison camps. And she says, in the midst of all of that, I can see past the the possessions, I can see past the physical, and I await seeing my Savior face to face. I await seeing Jesus. This world's not what we live for. One of the hymns that came to my mind that reminds us of this exact uh, idea is this world is not my home. And in that song it says this, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures, they're laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. They're all expecting me and that's one thing I know. My Savior pardoned me and I onward go. I know he'll take me through Though I am weak and poor, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just up in glory land, we'll live eternally. The saints on every side are shouting victory. Their song of sweetest praise drift back from heaven's shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. A person who truly understands that living the Christian life is not about this world. It's not about the physical. They see past it, and they say, this world is not my home. Is that you today? Can you see past the the physical difficulties you have, the the money situations that you have, the the here and now to say, my life's about something more. I want it to be about something more. God, help me to remember who you are and what I live for. Are you fully content with God's plan for your life? Number one, to evaluate content people, meditate and embrace God's realities. That brings us to number two from our text, Discontent people fall for the false promises of worldly riches. Discontent people fall for the false promises of worldly riches. Are you gullible? I've got some junior hires in my house, three to be exact, and we all know what it means to be gullible. One who is told something and that they will automatically believe it no matter what. And having those junior hires in my uh, house there's obviously little jokes and funny things that always have happen. One that's always there is, hey, you got something on your shirt there. Boop, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, you're gullible, right? You're falling for a trick that, you're, that someone is putting before you. They are usually doing that to me, by the way, and uh, I'm not the one doing it to them. Um, but how about you? Are you gullible? I found this little uh, cartoon. Test your gullibility. This man is going to put his 10 cents in to see if he's gullible. And look what it looks like. He's about to get a punch in the face, okay? Uh, Now, imagine if you're a Christian and that top of the sign says, put 10 cents in and you can become a millionaire, all right? And you're thinking, oh, wow, that looks pretty good. And you automatically, you just look past 
the boxing glove there that's about to punch him in the face and say, wow, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be rich. I want life to be easy for me. This is what I want. Well, we know it's a, a test of gullibility. And here, it, what we find this happening in verse 9 of our text as well. Verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich fall into many gullible tests of Satan. Right? They're saying, he puts this thing in front of them and says, money, 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 if you just get more money, that's going to make your life easy, happy, all of those things. But what does verse 9 tell us? The truth of the matter is what God, through Paul, reminds us of, that those who desire to be rich, what actually happens to them? They fall into temptation. Not just the temptation is put in front of them, but they actually fall because they believe what Satan tells them about money and about riches. They fall into temptation. They fall into a snare. We've got a lot of hunters here. And could you imagine if you're walking out in the woods and your leg comes upon a bear trap, right? And you're stuck there. You fall into a snare, something that's going to keep you there, something that is going to be painful for you. That's what it looks like, as Paul describes, living for money, living for riches. It actually turns you not to a life of ease, but a life of pain and a life of difficulty. It says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Not just the actual having money, but also the desires of your heart. You might be someone who doesn't have a lot of money, and your desire is to have more money. Or you might be someone who has a lot of money, but your desire is still, I just need that a little bit more. I just need to make sure that I have enough to take care of me. And in those thoughts, what we're really doing is we're trusting in the possessions of this world. We're finding comfort in the possessions. And God and the person of Jesus Christ is off to the side. Like, okay, yeah, he saved me for all of eternity, but I want to live for this, this really great stuff that I have in front of me. Is that how we look? I mean, too often that's, that's my own personal heart that I need to shape and I need to guide back to God and ask him to help me for, ask for forgiveness in those areas. God, help us to have our hearts guided in the right direction. Riches promise us a lot of false things. What are some of those? What are some of the false promises of riches? Well, first one you think about, a lot of times goes through our mind, well, more money will solve my problems. More money is going to solve my problems. I won't have to worry. I'll have the finances I need to buy whatever I need. Well, what happens when that sickness comes along that has no cure? What happens when riches cannot pull you out of that hole that you're in? You're, you're faced with the, the, the actual facts that money can't do that. It can't solve your problems. Another thing false promises uh, of riches include, more money will ease and ease my worry and anxiety. Well, if I just had a little bit more, I wouldn't have to worry about life. I wouldn't have to think about, it. what if I don't have enough? What if, what if uh, something happens and my car is taken from me and my house is taken from me? And you fall into all of these what-ifs and we think that the answer is more riches. More riches. Where are we finding our peace in that thought process? Well, it's not in Christ. 
It's not in his ability to really sustain you and give you what you need. It's through ourselves and our job and our riches and what we can have here. That's what we're trusting in in that thought process. More money will ease my worry and anxiety. Another one, more money will allow me to enjoy the good life. More money will allow me to enjoy the good life. You know, I'm sick of working these hard hours, and if I just had a little bit more, I could travel more. I could have a better vacation. I could have that house that I wanted. I could have that addition to the house that I wanted. I could have that vehicle that I wanted. I could have, I could have, I could have all of these things saying, there's something better out there than Jesus Christ. And is that the truth? I mean, Paul tells us, no, that is not the truth. If we think that riches are going to satisfy us, we fall into temptation, into a snare, into all of these hurtful and painful things. One last one, more money will bring me a life of ease and happiness. More money will bring me a life of ease and happiness. Satan uses all of these things. And you know, in our mind, sometimes we wouldn't come out and say this directly to someone who says, what do you think about riches? But as the day-to-day go by, as the month-to-month go by, if you had some of these thoughts, I just had a little bit more. Ah, it would be better. I'd be rich. I'd be happy. Man, lies of Satan, he's trying to get you off. Uh, the, re- the reality that Jesus Christ is all we need for complete contentment and satisfaction. These promises of riches that sometimes infiltrate our mind, they cause us to live for money. They cause us to put money above everything else. What are some practical ways that that happens? Well, sometimes we willingly work unhealthy long hours, right? To the detriment of our family or to the detriment of our life situation, we say, well, it's worth it. Look at the money I'm getting. Look at the raise I'm going to get. Look at how I'm working my way up in my job situation. You know, it's worth it. And we take that step to work unhealthy long hours. Another thing we might do is that we willingly cross God's ethical boundaries for money. Your boss asks you to lie. He asks you to be deceitful. Do whatever you can to get money, and you think to yourself, well, if I don't have this job, what am I going to do? And so you slowly take those steps, and pretty soon it's something that's natural for you to just do what you can to get the paycheck, do what you can to get the next step in your job, and you're willing to put God's ethical boundaries aside. Here's something else. We sometimes willingly have our husband and wife both working full-time jobs outside of the home to the detriment of the family. Now, stay with me for a minute. You're saying, wait, pastor, your own wife works outside the home. And you're right. She does work outside the home. But it is a a constant discussion that we have with one another to say, is this this good for us? Is this too much for us? Uh, It is not the reason that we have it both working outside the home because we need more money. We need more money. And I think that's, that's the challenge that each of us has to ask with our own families, is what we're doing with our personal lives and our work situations to really get more money so we can have ease, so we can have comfort, so that we don't have to worry. Or is it we're being wise with where God is at? And as soon as something makes us understand that what, where we're doing it and where we're at is unwise, then I'm going to take a step back. You know, there have been times in our family where We've had my wife working an outside job, and we were in a situation where it seemed like we were just passing each other. I was coming home from work. She was working the later shift, and we did that for about a month and a half. We had a a very serious conversation to say, 
this is, it's just not working. We cannot do this. And we opted to put that job aside and say, God will provide something different. And he has. And I challenge you to take those same type of steps. Have those open conversations with your husband and your wife to say, are we putting money and finances first? Or can we put things in the right perspective and understand God's going to provide no matter what that is? We're willing to do some of those things when we have money or riches as our goal. Another thing is that we become selfish and miserly with the riches God has given us. If we put, God, if we put riches first, you know what we're going to do with all of our possessions? We hoard them. We want to keep them. It's all about me, and there's no way I'm giving it to anybody else because I've worked hard for it. But when we understand that God's the one that has given us all of those things, and those are all his, we're willing to give of what he has given to us. Don't become miserly and selfish, but give uh, of the riches God has given you. Last thing, we foundationally believe that no amount will ever be enough. I mean, in our heart, that's what we're saying if we're living for riches. It's that nothing's going to be enough. I've got to keep going to get the next step, next level. And just, if you could talk to rich people throughout history, and they'd say, how much more do you want? And they'd say, just another dollar, just another years of, of salary, and I can retire. It's always more. It's always more. <clears throat> Jim Carrey is a comedian who's worked his way up in the industry and has become one of the most well-known And he has achieved it all. The highest position of comedy, the highest position of being an actor, and he, everyone, he gets the accolades for all of that. He says something very profound. He says this. He says, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. This is coming from someone that has done it all. He's got all the riches. He's got all the accolades. And he says, I'm at the top in the industry, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, I don't know where he's at with God, but this is a very true statement that all of us as Christians have to remember. Riches are not it. They're not going to satisfy you. The next thing that you think purchasing that's going to satisfy will not satisfy. Verse number 9, But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This brings us to our third uh, truth that we can evaluate our life and ask that question, am I content or am I discontent? We find it in verse 10, but number three is, discontent people love worldly riches more than God. Discontent people, they love worldly riches more than God. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What that means is that the love of money is at the heart of all kinds of ungodly desires and actions. It's not the money itself, and God provides for people. Some he allows to be rich, some he allows to be not so rich, but it's not the money that's the problem. It says this in the text, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And you know what happens with the root? It, it, it spreads out into all different areas. If we really think that riches are going to satisfy, our life spreads out. We're going to get whatever we, do whatever we can to get those riches. Put off the good things so that I can make sure I'm there to make the money I want to have. It spreads out. It roots out. 
If you have that love of money, it spreads into everything else. And then it says through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And what it's reminding us of is that if we love money, what it's showing us is that we love something more than we love God. We can't love God and money and riches the same amount. The riches that we have as Christians have to come from Christ. We have to be content in Christ. Our godliness with contentment bound together to, to create that satisfaction that we long for. Also, the love of money is directly opposed to the love of God. We love money. Our love for God automatically, automatically goes the wrong way. It says, Through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This last week, I looked uh, up on the computer some different pictures of people being impaled. And that's the, that's the picture that we're getting here. This craving for riches, people wander away from the faith and then they're pierced, impaled themselves with many pangs. Well, don't worry, I didn't put any up on the screen, okay? But as you look at some of those pictures, someone gets a, a tree through their chest. Someone had a, 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 tr- uh, a post that went like through half of their neck. It, they're being impaled. It's something that is detrimental to their life. It's hurtful. It's not going to be something that's good. He's using that picture here to say that those who love money, they love them more than God, and it's going to be hurtful for you. How about you? Does your heart love money and even the possibility of riches more than God? What if somebody said, you know, what if you were a millionaire? Does your heart just kind of skip a beat and think, oh man, that would be so incredible? You know, is that what our, our mind really is uh, guided towards? And if so, we have to ask God, God, uh, help me to get over that, to see what's right and good and live for you. Love for money is not the answer. This isn't the only place, of course, in Scripture that reminds us of this truth. Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Clearly laid out for us there. Don't, you cannot serve God and money. And as we serve money, sometimes we think, well, that's going to provide for me. Who is the one that provides everything for us? Even if he's allowed us to work our way up, gain a, a salary or a job that pays a lot, God is the one that has brought you through that and given you those gifts. They're, it's all God's. And he's the one that's providing for you, not your job, not your riches. Those, can, those are uh, things that just float away. They're nothing. Luke twelve twenty-seven to 31. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. What's he reminding us? All the gifts that we get come from God, and he cares for, he loves his children, he is not going to let them go without, with what they, without what they need. He's going to provide for us. Where does your security lie? Is it in your riches, or is it in the God who can provide all things that we need? Philippians four eleven through 13 says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is Paul talking in this passage in Philippians. And he's not someone that is talking this way from uh, the throne of a kingdom. He is one that goes through a bunch of difficult situations in his life. Beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, out at sea, floating on a, a piece of wood for a day and a night. He's in prison multiple times. And in all of those things, he says, I can learn and I have learned to be content because I know my contentment doesn't come from the physical life, the world here, but it comes from the one that saved me. It comes from Jesus Christ. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I can be content in all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? This, this verse, that passage does not mean I can do whatever I want because God strengthens me. He's talking about contentment here. He says, I can be content. How about you? How about when your friend gets a new car, when he gets that bigger house that he wants, that job, promotion, whatever physical thing? Do you find your heart jealous? Do you find your heart saying, I, that's me, that should, that, I deserve that. What's the true reality about what we deserve? What we deserve is an eternity separated from God. That's where our sin places us, as an enemy of God. But because God loved us, he provided Jesus Christ to go to the cross, die for our sin, and give you salvation for all of eternity. We, that causes a, a thankful, contented heart. That's where we need to be focusing that we deserve something wretched and horrible because we are sinners, but God has provided an eternity with him forever. Is that where your heart goes? Or is it, oh, if I just had this, oh, they shouldn't have that. I should have this. I'm jealous of it. Yeah. It's telling you your heart is in the wrong spot. Repent. Ask God to get you back, your eyes back on him. Last one, Hebrews 13:5. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake, nor forsake you. Again, he says, be content. Be content with what you have. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You're going to lose all your possessions at some point, but I will not forsake you. Find your satisfaction and contentment in that. Where do we go at the end of a message like this? What are some practical things we can do to put this into action? To say, God, I don't want to be about riches, but I want to be about you. How can I make and help shape my heart to be content? I have a couple suggestions for you. Number one, constantly remind yourself of what you deserve and what God has given you. I mean, we, we talked about this just a second ago. But as you're thinking about that, you think of practical ways you can do it. Maybe it's a verse you can memorize. Maybe it's a passage you can write out and have around you. So you can remember, one, what you deserve and what God has, has graciously given you through salvation. When our heart stays focused on that, it helps us stay content with where he has placed us. Number two, reminisce about God's provisions. And maybe do that at lunch today. This is a lunch discussion question for you to sit around the table and you can say, what is one way you remember God providing for you? And you can have that discussion with your kids, but it's very helpful as you as parents can remember some of the things God has done for you in the past, provided for you in the past, and you get to share those with your family, with your kids. Say, I remember when God did this and he showed us that we don't have to 
live for money or whatever. He's going to provide for us. Take that. Maybe have that discussion today at lunch. And not just, oh, it was a great sermon, but what can we talk about uh, to, to remember what the sermon was about today? Number three, methodolic, methodically and continually give your money back to God. Give your money back to God. And we, uh, we talk about tithe often in this, this church. And the purpose of tithe is not so that the pastor can get his salary and so that the church can be, you know, taken care of. Those things are byproducts of what God wants for you in your tithing. He wants you to remember that he's going to take care of you in this life. He wants you to remember that all the good things that he's given you, he gave to you and you can give back to him. Tithing is an important thing. And I say, come up with a plan so that you're thinking through the money that you're taking in and are you continually giving back to God? It's not just a, oh, the, the, I'm here, I guess the plate's going by me this week, I'll throw 10 in, I'll throw 20 in. No, it's saying, my budget is this, the, the check that I get from my work comes in, and how much can I give continually? Each month, I'm going to set this aside. That's a tithe. In the Old Testament, it's a 10%. And in the New Testament, he challenges Christians to uh, give with a joyful heart, but with the intent of giving a, an actual percentage continually. Have a plan to give God back to God. Here's another one, last one for you. Find someone to give $100 to. Now, you might laugh at that, okay? But I'm being deadly serious here. I mean, $100, you think, I can't give up 100 bucks for no reason. I mean, that's as much as you would spend on filling up your tank of gas. Now, how much of a blessing can you be to somebody by just giving them 100 bucks? And the way that you do it is not, I'm going to write a nice card, I'm going to put my name on it so they know that it's from me. Because you know what happens in that? You get a pat on the back from those people. Or you get a, oh, no, I can't take that. No, try to do it in a way where you're, you're blessing somebody, you're giving of your money and saying that that's not what I'm trying to live for. Maybe stick it in their box. Maybe drive by their house, put it in their mailbox. I don't know what to do. Do it some way that you're not getting the glory, but you're willing to give of your riches to make somebody else uh, yeah, give, give generously to somebody else. Those are some things to think about. Maybe you can find one that practically put these uh, truths into practice in your life. And that's what we need to do as we listen to sermons and as we look uh, to go away. I'm going to close by uh, reading one poem from Paul Tripp. I do this periodically. Uh, he has a book that is great to really, in the, the mindset of the book of Psalms, but he gets a topic and he really writes on it. So I want to close with that poem this morning. The poem is called Joy by Paul Tripp. It says this, All of the shiny, sparkling, attractive, glimmering, luminescent, seductive ornaments of the material world have no power to do for me what I want them to do. I see them, I crave them, I seek them, I plan for them, I acquire them, but when brought into my life and when held in my hands, when embraced by my heart, they fail me. They cannot provide for me the joy I never stop seeking. No, no material thing can produce joy. Nothing I can hold in my hands can bring joy to my longing heart. Nothing I've paid for will give me joy. The rush of temporary excitement, the buzz of a new possession, the power of acquisition and the enjoyment of using should not be confused with joy. Material pleasure, for as long as it lasts, may masquerade as joy, but it is not joy. The DNA of joy is gratitude. 
In the center of gratitude lives contentment. Contentment is being willing to live inside the boundaries of what God has provided. And joy is recognizing the person providing, the riches provided, and the grace of provision, the faithfulness depicted, and the love behind it all. Joy and contentment celebrate what is. Discontentment meditates on what could be. May I, may I have the grace to see your providing hand, to love the giver more than the gift. And may the worship of my heart produce what created things can't, lasting, robust, contented, sturdy, vertical, internal joy. I hope that's your heart today. Wanting to find true joy in God through Jesus Christ, the only thing that can satisfy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us Help our heart that so easily turns to shiny things and to things that we think will satisfy. God, help us to turn from those to you, to see how great you are and how wonderful it is to live inside of your laws, to love you, to serve you, to pass that knowledge of you onto family and friends that are around us. God, help us to be content with you. Thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.